This is Recorded Future, Inside Security Intelligence. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 218 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Joining us this week is Ryan Chapman, Principal Incident Response and Forensics Consultant at BlackBerry. Our conversation centers on his belief that most organizations aren't nearly as prepared for a ransomware incident as they think they are, a belief that has been formed from countless engagements with groups who found out the hard way that their backups have issues or their overall incident response plan comes up short. We explore the spectrum of reasons why that may be so and discuss practical ways for security professionals to balance their organization's resources with their appetite for risk. Stay with us. In early age, early days, I was obsessed with computers. Uh, my father wasn't around a whole lot, but when he was, he would interest me in computers. So that was kind of like when he wasn't around, I'd be like, I'm going to show him. I'm going to learn this cool stuff. So I kind of you know, built this little cocoon for myself in, in the world of computers. I got a graphing calculator from Texas Instruments when I was in uh, seventh grade and learned that you could, eventually I learned you could program it in assembly language. So I learned mm-hmm. how to write assembly language. I took a concurrent enrollment course at the college there. So I had learned assembly language and I was obsessed with the computers. And then as I started learning, you know, as, as you're younger, kids, they pirate games and things of that nature because they're just like, sure, oh, it's free, whatever. We're well beyond the seven years, so I'm okay. <laughs> so I'm okay. Um, and I, I was like, I, eventually it got to me, how are these people doing this? How, how does this happen? How does this work? So I started looking into the cracking tutorials and learning how people were doing these things and started getting more interested in that side of software reverse engineering. And then as I got uh, into high school, I kind of just did some fun, random jobs. Uh, nothing made a living on eBay for like four years doing nothing. Eventually, I decided to grow up and I moved out here to where I live, Arizona, after my, uh, I was going to say my father, but he was, my grandfather uh, had a, a massive stroke. And I decided, well, I need to get a big boy job. So I got a job in a call center and then I, they made me a trainer there. So I was a technical trainer and I got to go in front of new groups every you know two, four weeks and run my mouth about technical stuff. And it was awesome. I loved it. And I went to school during that time. And as I was graduating, a, a former student of mine, called me and was actually bragging about his new job at this massive engineering procurement and construction company. I won't say the name, but if you go to LinkedIn, it's right there. Like it's not hard to find. <laughs> okay. So it, just say it's a very, very large company. Um, they built national labs, nuclear sites, like you, you name it, huge, huge construction company. So he was bragging about the sock job. And I was like, that sounds amazing. And I ended up doing that. I got into the security operations center and right it, within a matter of days, it solidified, okay, I'm going to be a blue teamer. I'm going to be cyber defense, if you will. I thought huh. I was going to be a red teamer. You know, I thought I was going to break into stuff and, and have fun. I was like, nope, that is not what I want to do. I want to stop these, um, you know, the ease with which looking back at my days of seeing software being pirated and cracked so easily, right? It was like, I want to, can I stop that? Um, seeing our digital lives start to become more susceptible to to damage and to you know break in, if you will, in just a, a trivial sense. It's like I want to stop that. And as I got into this sock role, it just the floodgates just opened up. So hmm. every little thing that we touched, I got obsessed with it. 
So the first time we saw malware that wasn't, for example, on Virus Total, you know, it wasn't known mm. to the world, if you will. Uh, it was like, how's that work? All those little things just absolutely intrigued me. So I eventually moved from our SOC to our CERT, the incident response team. I moved into network security monitoring on the CERT. So half my job was CERT SOC liaison because I was, I'm the talker, if you can't already tell, right? <laughs> so well, I'm, I was, I'm, in, I'm curious too. I mean, throughout this journey, you're, the powers that be, the folks above you in the organization are supporting this way of thinking. They're pursuing, they're, they're, they're supporting your pursuits, your, as you say, obsessive pursuits. I, I suppose it's in everyone's best interest there. Yes, this was born out of a, uh, there was a bit of a whoopsie that occurred within that organization in 2011. Mm. And uh, I can't speak directly to it, but let's just say that out of nowhere, we went from no SOC to a SOC of 18 people, three, uh, six shifts of three people, 24-7. <laughs> so, wow. so, you know, they built this team up and it wasn't just a throw some money at the problem, let's fix this issue. It was a, holy heck, we need to, um, foster a, an environment of security and a complete mindset of the importance of our blue team. And so that's, I just got, I really got lucky getting into that environment. Um, plenty of tools to play with. Um, it was, it was great. It was a really, really good time. So I eventually transitioned to the DFER team, the digital forensics team, but really I was doing the same stuff. You know, I was training up the SOC. I was working as a kind of like a tier three ish for the SOC, you know, if they, had level twos who needed escalations. They would just come to the guy who runs his mouth a lot. And uh, <laughs> I would liaison between the SOC and the CERT, you know? So doing that for seven years, you know, I had two jobs for seven years in a row. That then got to the point where I was like, well, you know, I want to go see the world, if you will. And uh, so I eventually did a bunch of interviewing and I didn't want to leave. I just didn't want to leave because that environment was so, it was such a good place to be. And then I found Silence, which is where I eventually went. Uh, a lot of faith in their machine learning stuff. And, you know, I'll just call it machine learning stuff for now. I don't want to just sales pitch you on it. But uh, right. a lot of faith in that. And their professional services group was, was really cool. Um, I had a great, it's all about the interview process, right? So you're interviewing each other. And that was the group who I was just like, that, that's who I want to work with. Those people who interviewed me, I want them as my coworkers. And so that's where hmm. I ended up here doing this for two years now. Um, I absolutely adore it. I could never go back to not consulting. Um, it, you know, I, I might eventually go into my little hole and become a, a full-time reverse engineer or something, but I, I doubt it. I'll be in IR. I'll be training IR. I'll be training SANS courses and, and running my own SANS course soon. And I, it, it's just a world that I absolutely love. And uh, it's, it's ever-evolving. It's always changing. There's new things to learn. Um, you know, tactics and techniques change over time. So then you have to catch up and keep up. It's a game of whack-a-mole. I just, I, I adore it. You know, going back to your early days, it, it reminds me a lot of my own experience, which I, I think a large part was driven by the fact that as a teenager, the resource that I had seemingly an unlimited amount of was time. I didn't have any money, Right. So to your point of kind of reverse engineering cracked software or even, you know, like I remember for me, if I wanted a word processor, well, I couldn't afford one. So I wrote my own, you know, that sort of thing. And I think so many folks I've spoken to from that generation have come up through that mindset of there wasn't a whole lot available. The stuff that was available was expensive. So, well, I got the whole summer and I can stay up all night and work on this. I, I love that you say that because I notice a very 
very different trend from from our generations, if you will, um, yeah. to the to the current generation. And the current generation has something that we didn't have. And and now to a degree, like uh, bear with me here. It's open source. It's freaking GitHub.com. It's mm. Stack Exchange. We didn't have those things. Um, having them now, you know, when we have people who are like, I wish I had a project that would do, uh, well, there's already either one already out there or there's a framework you can utilize. You can fork a project and go for it. Or there's just code mm-hmm. you could, you know, I don't want to say rip off, but you know, rip off from a tons of sources. And so right. you have that old school mentality of, well, I have to make it, you know, versus like, oh, well, let's just use these things and put them together. Some people think that uh, we had it better because it forced us to be inventive. I don't like to look at it that way. I like to look at it as you see these younger crowds like teenagers. Uh, they're using SaltStack and GitHub and uh, Ansible also for other projects. And just like they're 15, 16 years old and they're learning to build all these things, pull them up, write their own code, integrate stuff from GitHub. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. Yeah. Oh my goodness. They are. Oh, what I would have done. (laughs) It's it's so cool seeing them have that ability at such a young age. Well, I do want to dig into uh, a specific topic with you today. And we want to talk about ransomware. And I want to get your take on preparing your team for, I don't know if it's fair to say an eventuality, but uh, it seems like day by day, uh, growing odds that ransomware may be something that you have to contend with. Um, how do you come at this? What, what do you think the best way is to make sure that your team's ready? Ransomware. It, it's almost to the point where you, you sh- it's okay to say you're going to get hit with ransomware. You're going to deal with ransomware. Um, at the very least, within your career, you're going to deal with ransomware. I, you know, I personally, I, I'm authoring Sands' upcoming course on ransomware. So this is going to be uh, Forensics 528. And notice it's a forensics course. It's not a, an SEC or security. It's not a general security course. I'm writing the course from the perspective of the incident responder. And the whole point of the course and why we're putting it out there is because there's, I don't think I've worked a case yet. I don't think we have worked a case yet, to be honest, where the client was prepared for what happened. Um, and you may not have, you know, some of your clients don't have an, a security team really at all, right? They just have some IT folks. Uh, but even that, they just have no idea, you know, what to do in these situations. Meanwhile, pretty much anyone outside of consulting, you may have a large organization with many, you know, SOC and CERT or whatever, you know, you want to call those C-CERT or whatever you want to call those teams, and they're just not ready for ransomware. And they, you think you are because you review all these articles and it's constantly in the news. And you know the names of the groups, you know, Revil and Conti and Paisa and previously Maze and Ryuk and all these, you hear the names, you mm-hmm. see kind of what they do. You get the idea of it. You know that they often come in via phishing and remote desktop protocol are the top two, you know? And these things are, are becoming well-known, but still people really don't realize what they're going to have to do in order to respond. And many times, especially when our clients come to us, they have not enabled things within the environment. They don't have the visibility. It's number one in my mind is visibility. Um, plan, well, planning and, and visibility. Um, you could plan around, we'll need to respond by doing blah and, and yada, yada. But if you don't have the visibility to do that, you can't do it. And so, you know, for me, preparing an organization to, or just individuals to deal with ransomware is really all about not just general concepts and not just abstract thought, let alone like here are these things you'll see. 
what are they going to look like in your environment? That's important because I, you know, if I wrote, for example, this course and my initial idea was I was going to spin up this absolutely beautiful, you know, test environment, this range that had everything under the sun. We were going to have, you know, fully packet captured environment that was uh, SSL decrypted. So you could see all the traffic in and out. First off, no one has that, let alone for 30 <laughs> days at a time. I know folks who do have it and trust me in general, no one has it, right? You don't have that. So the large majority of the stuff that I envisioned originally and that a lot of people train off of, here's the best case scenario. This is how you respond to ransomware. Yeah, that's great. But if we were to write an entire course, for example, around something like that, you have someone go take the course and then they come back and they say, um, okay, well, we don't have what we need at all, like at all. And in order to respond, we need to go spend, you know, three billion bucks a year or more. <laughs> and mm -hmm. of course, the higher ups are like, that's not going to happen. Stupid. <laughs> like, duh. Right. So then what was the purpose of, of that training? Like you, you learned on the theoretical and, and that's, that's not what you have. So I like to talk to people and I like to get them to think about what you have and your environment and what visibility you have. And if you don't have a particular piece of visibility or you know, a lens into a, a particular type of threat or attack or whatever it is, then you work to get that however you can. If you have to pay for a service, then that's something to, to analyze. Or can you, you know, dedicate a person or two or developer or whatever it is to set up a particular system to provide that visibility to you? You know, do you, how much money do you really have to spend? What open source projects can do it? That kind of thing. Yeah, you know, and I think there's that famous uh, phrase, I think it was Mike Tyson who said everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. And I think for many uh, organizations, finding out that they've been hit by ransomware is a punch in the face. But I, I, is it a matter that many organizations think to themselves, well, we've got good backups. You know, I, I imagine them picturing like a you know, a scissor switch like in, in uh, Dr. Frankenstein's lab where they just throw this scissor switch and everything's up and running again. Our parallel system is up and running and now we'll, you know, we'll, so business as usual as the other stuff gets remediated. Is that the fantasy that people play out in their minds? It still is. And it's because the royal we as, as a global IT uh, organization, whatever you want to you know, call all of us, we, tr we trained ourselves to do that um, over time as attacks became more prevalent in general as especially ransomware became slowly as it evolved to, you know, even before what it was today, per se, uh, especially with the Maze team in 2019, I'll get to that in a moment. We trained ourselves that, okay, well, if uh, an environment gets locked down, you know, they used to be called lockers, right, ransomware. So if it gets locked, it gets encrypted, whatever, well, well then we'll just, you know, as long as we have the backups, then, then we'll be okay. So for years, I think, like really starting in 2014, that's just what I think. Really starting in 2014, I saw a big push for organizations to move to uh, backup procedures that would then, quote unquote, protect them. And uh, we then slowly started shifting to, okay, well, are you testing those backups? Most people still are not testing their backups. Absolutely not mm -hmm. doing that. Mm -hmm. But they still, yes, I absolutely agree with you that they see that switch. They just go, oh, we'll just, boop, just flip the lever and then, then we're back up. Yeah, yes. Well, the problem, there's many, many issues with that. Um, the, just one example, I almost got befuddled. There. I was like, but, but there's so many. One of, the, <laughs> one of the very common examples that 
I see personally is I've had many clients that come in to us and they're like, uh, we don't know how, you know, we got hit with ransomware and we set the case up and, and find out what's going on. And they're like, you know, first off, we, whether we're going to pay the ransom or not, you know, we'd like to pull stuff from backup, but our backup got encrypted. What do we do? And I'm like, well, <laughs> yeah, you have a couple options. Backups get hit all the time. If you have an on-premise backup solution, there's a, a complete, there, you know, it's not out of the realm of possibility at all. I've seen it many times that it will also be encrypted. Even if you're like, oh, but it's, uh, it's an appliance, uh, it's running Linux, and it's just a backup storage network, and we push our stuff to it via, you know, whatever these, these scheduled jobs. And so, you know, it's a little more secure. It's like, okay, if you have aggressors in your environment who, you know, pull all the keys to the kingdom, if you will, uh, they can easily pivot over to that device and, and bring it down. I wonder sometimes if the way people should look at ransomware is you're left with a smoking hole in the ground, a wily e. coyote smoking hole in the ground, right? And treat it the same way you would treat a natural disaster, a hurricane, whatever. This stuff is gone. It's just gone. So how are you going to react to that? I like that you say that because I am pushing more and more these days for folks to, first off, if they don't have one, create one, but revamp their disaster recovery plans. So mm-hmm. your DRPs, business continuity planning, if that's you know shoved in there or they're separate, whatever, look to those and address those while you're also addressing just a, an IRP, an incident response plan, um, and make sure that you realize that it's going to be a mass event and you have to take that into account. And um, a, a critical thing about planning and having plans, communication plan, let's just take a communications plan, Right. A communications plan says if uh, a certain segment or a certain service or whatever is down, here are the communication uh, procedures, right? Many times those communication procedures will outline specific tools or, or services or functions, whatever you want to call them, that you then use in order to communicate, right? And if one of those is down, here's the backup. What if they're all down? What if your entire uh, environment is down? Many times mm-hmm. DRPs say, oh, we have backups. Okay, uh, can you actually back up? So if you have a cloud-based backup medium, how uh, what's the bandwidth look like between that remote site and your users? Or, or not your users, probably not your user machines, but your whatever services you need to recover. How many terabytes of data are up there? And how quickly mm-hmm. can you actually get that down? Is it quicker to have someone overnight you a bunch of drugs? Like, how are you going to get that data? How quickly right. can that occur if the word quick even applies at that point? And um, a good example also is when people think that, that they, when they don't look at it as this massive smoking hole, they think, well, we have these tools we can use that we can deploy. I like to use that term, by the way, to, to fill in that hole, right? Well, how are you going to deploy those tools? Oh, we're going to use, uh, we're just going to use SCCM. Oh, are you now? <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, SCCM has been encrypted. Oh, well, we'll just use a, a group policy and we'll just use GPO. Like, okay, well, Active Directory is down. None of your machines are connected to a domain because there is no domain. Now what? And people find themselves, usually when that occurs, that's when they really feel like they're in a hole and they start to really freak out. And whatever that ransom fee is starts to look very appealing to them. It's also, I mean, we, we can't discount the reality that you have to balance your own risk, right? I mean, you can you can prepare so much that you don't have an unlimited amount of money, you don't have an unlimited amount of time, you don't have an unlimited amount of resources, you don't have an, an unlimited amount of support from the, the top levels of the company, right? So 
how do you find that balance of uh, you know this? We feel as though this meets our own appetite for risk. Hmm. That's a good question, and I think it's it's individual to each organization, which is a usually a cop out answer. Oh, you have to, to come up with it on your own. But yeah. you know, cost is always going to be a factor. But yet, many organizations just simply don't have the talent, which also has to do with cost, by the way, like hiring someone who's been in the game for you know a long time and knows how to set services and systems up. We don't come cheap, right? But anyway, they don't have the, the talent pool there to determine we don't need this $3,000 uh, over two-year service to have that particular protection. We can actually use this open source uh, alternative, right? Or we can build our own with half of this code or, or whatever, there's still a cost mm-hmm. to that, of course. You need the personnel, the development time. You have to have the servers that are running it. You have to have the bandwidth, blah, blah, blah. But I think that a lot of organizations don't realize it doesn't matter how much security you, you have. It doesn't matter how many people. You could have uh, 20 folks like the people on my team, all on your team. And you can have the most expensive appliances out there. You can have the best security mechanisms at the network layer and at the host layer, you know, multi-tiered, multi-layered security environment. These ransomware actors are going to get in. And when they do get in, you know, how much damage can they do versus how well you've fortified? So you have your preparation costs, your fortification, which is another version of preparation for when it does happen, right? Costs let alone your ability to actually respond. And many times organizations don't realize that no matter how much money they spend, whether it's a little or a lot, whether it's you take 10% of your IT budget and dedicate it to security, which I don't, I don't pay security budgets, right? They don't come out of my bucket. So it's cute for me to say, spend at least 10% of all IT on security. That's, that's precious right. that, that I say that. That means nothing to most, <laughs> you know, they're like, that's cool, Ryan, whatever, dude. Um, I'd like to see 20%. Of course I would, because I want you to hire me. <laughs> like, right, duh. Right. So it, it doesn't matter how much you spend, you're still accepting risk. So the, the question then becomes, how do you minimize risk the most while spending, the, not the least, you don't want to spend the least and try to get away yeah. with it, right? And it really comes down to understanding, for ransomware specifically, the way that I like to frame it is it comes down to the primary ways in which ransomware enters the environment and how well you can fortify those, deter, let alone fortify those defenses. So, you know, if if a company has a a particular firewall and they're thinking, well, you know, we need to move to an application-aware firewall and we need to enable SSL concentrations. In other words, you know, decrypt SSL for all the traffic except for like bank sites or what have you. And legal usually has a problem with that anyway. Um, that's going to cost this amount of money. It's like, well, okay, um, I love those firewalls, Palos and Fortinets and, oh, goodness, yeah, yeah, okay, cool. But but many groups can't afford those. So what are the alternatives? Well, how are you monitoring your firewall logs? Um, When there are, do you have alerting on those logs for certain things like a simple port 3389, which is remote desktop protocol? If you have that coming inbound and it's accepted, do you have an alert on that? If it's outside, like any maybe any at all, depending on what country in, in which you dwell, I guess, or what I'm trying to say. And then mm-hmm. your clients, right? Like You're like, we're Canada. We have nothing outside Canada. No one outside Canada. Then block everything outside Canada. Everything. That's your firewall. Can you? you know, hopefully you can. Block it all. Well, that could impact uh, folks on vacation. All right, deal with it on a one-off. 
And again, it's easy for me to say that because I'm not the one having to tune all the services when there are edge cases, you know, no matter how plentiful yeah. they are. But leveraging what you have is also something that I find many organizations don't do. Uh, a certain type of logging that's just not enabled. Uh, very common, very, very common. I'm working a case right now where uh, a particular type of logging could have been enabled that may have given us additional visibility. Um, at this point, we don't even know, to be honest. But it's like, well, I wasn't there. Uh, I don't know. Um, a thorough security policy-based review of the various tools and systems you have to see how they're configured and what you could do on top of that to secure those, I, I recommend. And it's, it's a dangerous game to play. And again, this is a, a Ryan recommendation, not, not a, a day job or, or Sans recommendation. <laughs> but I like the idea of buying, a, even just if it's a couple, even, um, what are, what are they, sales engineer usually is what the term would be, SE hours with whatever product you already have. Um, if you're buying a new one, you know, just throw in a couple hours, um, maybe set it up yourself. You know, I'm not saying just go buy, like we sell professional services, you know, at day jobs. So I'm not trying to sell you stuff from, from us. I mean, no matter what it is, you know, have right. them just be like, can you just do a config, a base config review for me? And even if it's like a, they come in and they're like, well, you know, we could look at it for five hours and then we could fix it for 50. All right, look at it for five hours or three hours. I'll pay you for three hours. Have them look at it. If you just don't have the people who could tell, that port shouldn't actually be exposed even internally, but it's part of this service, which needs to be port mapped to that service. And you're like, I don't know how that, just have them come in and say, well, you want to just lock that down. Um, and then you can even take that knowledge and find out how to do it yourself, you know? But I think right. it's very important that people look at those types of things. Firewalls are a great example. You know, um, firewalls, especially especially the application aware or the next generation, as the sales folks will call it, uh, firewalls. And, and Palo and Fortinet just come to mind because I have a lot of experience with them. But even those, many organizations don't have them configured in a super secure way. You know, uh, taking remote desktop protocol for ransomware, you take that into, into uh, account. Sometimes folks will say, well, I block port 3389. Okay, well, you can have shadow IT, which is a fun term, right? Uh, folks who do it outside the change management process, if you will, that's an easy way to put that, who yep. decide, well, um, I'm just going to hide. You know, I want to connect remotely to, to that guy over there, whatever that guy is, right? And I'm just going to hide it. So I'm going to put that on port uh, 4000, right? Uh, or port, you know, whatever. And so what they don't realize is that um, scanners are constantly running, you know, uh, all over the Internet and by all kinds of entities, good and bad, uh, probably more bad. And they're looking for, you know, banner grabbing and service identification things on all ports. They're not just looking for RDP on port 3389. They're looking on all ports. If you have a next generation firewall and you have, oh, sorry, an application aware firewall. And you have the ability, I try to stay, I hate that term, I just used it. <laughs> and you have the ability to just say per application, we will not accept RDP inbound. I don't care what port it is, then do it. And many people don't do those types of things. And so that's, mm -hmm. you know, leveraging what you have is one of the first things that I typically, you know, discuss with people when it comes to how can you, uh, you know, deal with ransomware, uh, whether it's preparation or response with what you have in your environment is really take inventory of what's in your environment and don't assume that what you know about those particular devices is the end-all be-all of those devices. Our thanks to Ryan Chapman from BlackBerry for joining us. 
Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast production team includes coordinating producer Caitlin Mattingly. The show is produced by The Cyberwire with executive editor Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.